0: In this video, we're going to continue our discussion of chapter seven of Objectivism, the philosophy of Ayn Rand, the good with life as the essential root of value. Stay tuned. So in the last video, we talked about the development of Ayn Rand's ethical thinking and the way in which it really started with her goal to depict the moral ideal in that, in effect, you could even think of her argument in ethics as, look, here's Rourke, here's Galt, here's Dagny. Why would you want to live like anybody else when you could live a life like this? But that she also had certain moral reasoning involved in why these were ideal forms of life, that this is what we should aspire to, and that it really came early on as based in this distinction between living and existing between the people who were really living who were passionate, who were efficacious and those who were broken miserable inefficacious, low energy if you want to put it that way um, or and who were not thriving spiritually what she gets by Atlas Shrugged is that what's actually going on is that the distinction between living exit and existing the distinction between a galt and a james taggart or between rourke and keating or too is that there's a real is that there's a real and literal way in which the values and virtues practiced by her heroes are aimed at life at maintaining biological life and that all of the vices and the way of living and functioning that you see in her villains are moving them in the direction of literal, literal biological death. And so it's very interesting in that if you look at the way in which people attempt to learn objectivism and they study the nonfiction essays, what what I, I put as her kind of final perspective on ethics, or at least that's a way that Gates put it that I think is right, it's that they, they start with, in effect, well, okay, so Rand justifies sort of, you could think about, like, common sense material values directly tied to survival, such as food, shelter, clothing. And then the challenge is, well, how do we justify what we can think of as a richer conception of flourishing and kind of deep spiritual values, like productive achievement, and self-esteem and romance and freedom and if we look at Ayn Rand's development however it's very much the reverse it is that we see the value of flourishing if you want to put it that way and then it's only later then that she's able to integrate that with the kind of more directly related to survival kinds of values like flute food clothing and shelter so what Rand is going to argue is that morality exists precisely in order to identify life sustaining values things that make us better able to live and enjoy our lives and that the any alleged moral virtue or value that is anti life is in some sense illegitimate that it doesn't it cannot claim the status of a moral value or a moral virtue. And so in what sense, though, is she calling it illegitimate? And one way to think about it is, if you'll recall our discussion, I think we talked about it, but it's certainly an OPAR, of stolen concepts. This is what you can think of as a hierarchy inversion. It's when a person uses a higher level concept while ignoring or contradicting the concepts that are necessary in order to achieve it and so the kind of classic example that will be used in this conjunction is the idea of property is theft and so if a communist comes along and says property is theft he's stealing the concept theft because the concept theft depends on the concept property he has no right to use it therefore and so what we're going to see in rand's argument. And we're going to talk a lot about even what the argument is doing because I think people can sometimes follow the logic, but they don't get the overall what it adds up to and why she considers it an argument and, and what she's really attempting to prove. Um, the, what she's trying to establish is that to use the concept, to use moral concepts, evaluative concepts, value-laden concepts apart from life is, uh, is to treat those evaluative concepts as stolen concepts. It's that the only coherent meaning one can ascribe to evaluative concepts is that, is if you put them and see them in relation to the needs of a living organism. And so to say that somebody should do something that's anti-life, that's bad for them, she's gonna see as, in, as nonsensical, as the communist who says, property is theft, so I get to steal all your property. To put the point positively, moral reasoning, in her view, is only going to make sense if it's reasoning about the needs and requirements of an agent's survival. So a couple of quick recommendations, in addition, obviously, to Leonard's book on what we're covering in this section... Uh, so first of all, Tara Smith's book, Viable Values, goes into these points in a lot of detail and I think has a lot of good clarifications. Harry Binswinger's a pamphlet, I don't even know if you can get any more, but hopefully you can, Life-Based Teleology and the Foundations of Ethics that I found really helpful. I think the best presentation, though it is quite technical, uh, is, comes from Daryl Wright in a book, Metaethics, Egoism and Virtue. And his essay is called, or his chapter is called Reasoning About Ends Life as a Value in Ayn Rand's Ethics. And um, there's also some really good material in the Blackwell Companion. Oh, there is a course that I think you can uh, buy on the Ayn Institute e-store um, by Daryl that's kind of a more accessible version of at least parts of the chapter that I just mentioned called Ayn Rand in the History of Ethics. I think that's the right title. Um, but I think this is a really tricky sort of topic, and those are the at least some of the major places that I've found um, where you get a kind of very helpful elaborations on the argument that we're going to outline. So I'm going to share my best understanding and hopefully that will, uh, add some clarity. I'm not going to do a chapter or a section summary because it's really just a summary of Ayn Rand's um, argument so it would be a little bit repetitive so I'm just going to go through it in the way that I find most clarifying given what you read in Opar and then what I've you know taken in from these other sources and through my own reflection. So <clears throat> one place to start would be with just the whole question of what moral reasoning is and why philosophers have thought that moral reasoning poses a kind of particular challenge and the kind of contrast I want to take and the starting point I want to begin with is Hume and I'm not a Hume expert but this is from what I've read and and heard a pretty fair summary and at least it um Even if I'm getting Hume a little bit wrong, I think it clarifies something important about what Ayn Rand is arguing. So Hume concedes or allows that, look, not every value judgment is irrational. And if you think, for example, if you want to go for a jog, then reason can tell you, yeah, you should put on some comfortable jogging shoes. Like that's something you should do and putting on high heels that's bad, that in relation to a given end, we can regard certain means as better or worse for that. And the question though that Hume would ask is, well, why is going for a jog good? And that too could be answered by reason, by appealing to a still further end. So for instance, going for a jog can help me lose weight. But I mean, you can see where this is going, right? Like. Eventually, that has to end somewhere, and it's when we get to ultimate ends that this kind of means-ends reasoning seems to break down for Hume, because he thinks this can climax ultimately only in a something that we just want for emotional reasons, and so it's if you take the jogging example, I want to lose weight. Well, why do I want to lose weight? So that I can get a girlfriend. Well, why should I get a girlfriend? i don't know because i like having sex there's not it's just a kind of it's your passions that are ultimately directing your means ends reasoning and so it's your ultimate end why is that ultimate end good that humans say you just like it so here's a quote uh from him he says it appears evident that the ultimate ends of human actions can never in any case be accounted for by reason but recommend themselves entirely to the sentiments and and affections of mankind without any dependence on the intellectual faculties. So you get that, right? If the way that we can reason about value judgments is in reference to some end and then seeing different means as better or worse, it's our ultimate ends that have to be justified and that Hume thinks this pattern of justification can't provide an answer for. And so some philosophers have said, well, look, the ultimate ends are an issue of their, what Ayn Rand would call, intrinsic goods. And we'll talk more about the idea of intrinsic. We talked a little bit about it, if I recall, in our discussion of epistemology and the idea that there's an intrinsic view of knowledge, an objective view of knowledge, and a subjective view of knowledge. But this is true of values too, there's certain intrinsic values, things that are just valuable. And so that can be kind of the extreme view in Plato that there's just this real form of the good that's out there. It's good in and of itself, not in relation to any entities. And then there's less mystical versions that hold that there's kind of certain states or experiences that are good in and of themselves apart from any purpose that they serve and so um this could be something like well pleasure and it's just pleasure is good just because um or the greatest happiness for the greatest number these are sometimes treated as intrinsic goods it's that well there's just obvious that they're good and what that amounts to from objectivism's perspective is just i feel it so it's it's not actually answering hume it is I mean, in a certain, from a certain perspective, the reality we, we, we would say, from a Humean perspective, is th- you're just calling intrinsically good the thing that you desire, the thing that you know you're, that appeals to your sentiments. And so, Einran is seeing her argument in part as answering Hume without appealing to intrinsicism, and that's going to be our aim in understanding what she's doing in the next steps of the argument so i said that ayn rand agrees that what we're aiming to establish what the challenges that we have to establish via reason is an ultimate value and so here's how she puts it and and part of what she agrees with is that an ultimate value uh well let me just read the quote and then we'll see so she she agrees that we need to that moral reasoning is e- ends means reasoning and that this must terminate in an ultimate value and she puts it without an ultimate goal or end there can be no lesser goals or means a series of means going off into an infinite progression toward a non-existent end is a metaphysical and epistemological impossibility but why doesn't she think that this then collapses into subjectivism And there's gonna be kind of three basic steps to the argument. An examination of the concept value, an examination of this idea of an alternative, and then an examination of life. And that it's gonna be life is the only thing that faces alternatives, uh, faces a fundamental alternative of existence or non-existence, and that is seeing living entities pursuing Goals to keep them in existence that is going to allow us to make, to form the concept value in all ultimately evaluative concepts. So let's start with this idea of value. And so her analysis is really going to follow what we talked about when we talked about reduction. Remember that when we discussed reduction, we're trying to retrace the steps back down ultimately to perception that one would have to go through in order to it, reach a particular concept or proposition and thereby tie it to reality, get its connection to reality. And so, you know, for example, we went in depth through the, the idea of objectivity. And uh, I think one other principle we went through um, along those lines, though so I'm going, reason is man's means of survival. We looked at some of that and, and in particular, we looked at How would one reduce the concept? And so you can think about what she's going to do. She's going to start with this question of what are values and why does man need them? Or to put it another way, as she sometimes did, what gives rise to the concept value? And so uh, she has this famous quote, um, Value is that which one acts to gain and or keep. The concept value is not a primary. It presupposes an answer to the question, of value to whom and for what. It presupposes an entity capable of acting to achieve a goal in the face of an alternative where no alternatives exist, no goals and no values are possible. So this is a partial reduction. It's that she's taking back and breaking down this concept of value and she's saying... There are certain things that we have to grasp in order to be able to grasp something as a value, to, to be able to see things as the object that organisms or that, that entities are acting to gain or keep. It's, first of all, it's not a primary, so it's not a starting point. We can't just look out and see values out there. To grasp them, to grasp things as good or bad, we have to grasp certain relationships. And the core relationship is that there's an entity taking action and order to, in order to achieve something, and the outcome of that process, the achievement or non-achievement, will make a difference to it, and therefore will have grounds of saying, oh, that's good or that's bad. And so it's important to get here because this is something that I did not get until, um, gosh uh the early 2000s so i've been studying objectivism for um probably half a decade at that point an alternative is not just a disparate outcome in this sense if i sat around here and i don't have any change but i just flipped a coin in one sense you could say well there's an alternative right the coin came up heads or came up tails but if i'm just doing that for no particular reason then whether it comes up head or tails you couldn't say well that's good or bad for me that that's a difference but that's not an alternative an alternative is that to grasp something is valuable it's different outcomes where the that where an agent is working for one of those outcomes and the success or failure to get it will make a difference to him so if you've seen the um i think it's what's the movie called no country for old men uh I have this odd feeling I butchered the title, but I think it's No Country for Old Men. Um, it's the, the, a bad guy comes along, and at certain points he'll demand that somebody f- uh, call a coin flip. And if they get the right answer, then they live, and if they get the wrong answer, then they die. So let's say that they call tails. Well, in that kind of scenario now, you can see the difference in outcome making a difference to the person who acts. And that's not a great example because it's kind of a contrived and, and arbitrary sort of thing. It's not the kind of material one would form the concept value from. But I think you at least see the point in terms of what Rand is saying by alternatives. It's that for us to grasp better or worse, good or bad, value or disvalue, to be able to see that in reality, we need to see that the agent acting in ways where there's not just different options in terms of what can happen, but better or worse options, options that redound on them in some way. And so um, it's the way you can think about it is the end, the thing that they're after, you know, tails, it's something that it serves some further end the entity is invested in so to take a more realistic example and one that gets us outside the human realm for a moment because as we'll see humanity introduces a darn difficult complexity which is free will Um, if you see a gazelle trying to escape a lion that's an entity acting the gazelle's trying to escape a lion acting for what for a purpose in order to escape the lion Well, we can grasp that escaping is good for the gazelle because of the alternative it faces. It gets eaten or it doesn't get eaten. You can see, yeah, all right, it's after something and whether or not it succeeds or not has an impact on it. Now I can get the idea of value. I can get the idea of better or worse. And so Rand's conclusion is going to be that it's only living organisms that face these kinds of alternatives that are able to act to achieve goals, and that need to act and to achieve goals because they face an alternative, a fundamental alternative, one that explains and underlies all the rest of existence or non-existence. And so how does she get to that? Well, it's inductive. It's that she looks around and sees, all right, this is where we actually see organisms running around and doing things that redound on them the success or failure of which redound on them and it redounds in them because ultimately they can die ultimately they can go out of existence and that that underlies everything else uh that they do and so this is her famous paragraph about this there is only one fundamental alternative in the universe existence or non-existence and it pertains to a single class of entities to living organisms The existence of inanimate matter is unconditional the existence of life is not it depends on a specific course of action matter is indestructible it changes its forms but it cannot cease to exist it is only a living organism that faces a constant alternative the issue of life or death life is the process of self-sustaining and self-generated action if an organism fails in that action it dies its chemical elements remain but its life goes out of existence it is only the concept of life that makes the concept of value possible it is only to a living entity that things can be good or evil and this is where then we get the contrast that well a counterexample would be well what if you had something that acted and that you know at least had the kind of you could think physical capacity to pursue goals but that wasn't conditional if that sort of being existed and had values and that would undercut Ayn Rand's argument and that's where she brings in the idea of the immortal robot and Leonard Peikoff really expands and fleshes out this analogy or or thought experiment and it's important to really take seriously that the idea is it's unconditional so yes you could program it let's say if it was a computer with life like elements you can make it do things um you know theoretically you could make it experience pleasure pain but if we're taking seriously that you're not putting any of the things that life builds in order to direct things uh towards life and against death if you just think about it, it has the capacity to act But that it um, cannot be destroyed it cannot go out of existence then you couldn't make distinctions about better or worse for it and in fact even if you did say give it the experience to pursue pleasure there'd be no grounds and and that might even direct it in ways where the where the robot would go around and really work to find pleasure or something like that. But you'd have no grounds for saying, well, getting pleasure is better for it as opposed to worse. Because well, it still has infinite time to gain pleasure, if it doesn't, there's nothing that hinges on that. It's programmed to pursue pleasure, but there's nothing that, but there's no alternative that it faces. There's nothing at stake for it in having less pleasure than it might have otherwise had. So that it really is, as she puts it, um, the condition it's the conditional existence of organisms that makes values coherent and so here's another quote from rand life can be kept in existence only by a constant process of action the goal of that action the ultimate value which to be kept must be gained through its every moment is the organism's life and so now we're, we're going to get to the the real S- the summary of her full answer to Hume. So remember, <clears throat> Hume's claim was that you had to justify value judgments through means ends reasoning, but that that left you unable to justify the ultimate value, the final value that everything else is supposed to be a means to. And Rand's view is that unlike other values, life can serve as a coherent ultimate value because it is a means to an end but that end is itself a continuation of the life process life is a means to life and so in this sense it's an end in itself that every other value is a means to it and it's a means to nothing further that is nothing above itself nothing above this valuing process and the the repeating of that valuing process and so this is how Ayn Rand puts it it is only an ultimate goal an end in itself that makes the existence of values possible metaphysically life is the only phenomenon that is an end in itself a value gained and kept by a constant process of action epistemologically the concept value is genetically dependent upon and derived from the antecedent concept of life to speak value as apart from life is worse than a contradiction in terms it is only the concept of life that makes the concept of value possible and so i think Ankar has likened it to you know if you think about the means and reasoning is just kind of stretched out in a line or in an x-axis then there's something really weird and peculiar or problematic about it right Um, But if you think about it as a circle of values to life to values to life to values on life, then it's not it's not a vicious circle. It's a virtuous circle. It's that if you think about what life is, life is a process of self-sustaining, self-generated action. Well, the self-sustaining means the values that keep you alive. And so it's i'm living in order to pursue values i'm pursuing values in order to live and it's just two different perspectives in the same activity um and so i mean you can take for instance it's what what do you actually do in your life now we'll come back to human beings in a in a more in a richer sense in the next section but if you just pause and reflect on your own life it's yes i eat to live but partly i live to eat like that's a that's partly why I want to be here, for this value that sustains my ability to go on eating or to take, I think, a more profound value. It's I work to live, but in a real sense, I live to work. That's why I want to exist, but it's not work detached from life. It's work as a component of the thing I'm trying to sustain, which is my life. And so Ayn Rand thinks that that's true of all of our most important values, that they're both um, they're both a means to keeping us alive, but what does keeping us alive means, mean? It doesn't mean just kind of breathing and like half conscious or something. Living is, keeping us alive is the pursuit of those values that can sustain themselves as a process over time. So where are we in this argument? Well what we've established here is that it's life that makes possible the whole phenomenon of valuing and life necessitates the process of valuing if because if an organism doesn't engage in that process if it does something other than pursue its life it dies it goes out of existence so life is what makes pos- values possible it's what makes them necessary that said The next question is going to be well let's turn to man now and integrate this and integrate what we've talked about so far with the issue of free will because human beings don't have to pursue life or anything else there's nothing that we unlike living organisms which are structured in such a way that all of their activities are directed towards survival we have free will we have free choice we don't have instincts we've established that all earlier in the book and so what does that imply does it imply that maybe we can choose something else as our ultimate value or as ayn rand is going to argue it's no life is the ultimate value if you choose to live then You need guidance because you have free will, because you have a conceptual faculty, more generally, you're going to need guidance and ultimately a whole code of values in order to live. Um, That's going to be the right implication. You don't have to choose to live. If you don't, as we'll get to, nature will take its course, but there's nothing else to do. There is no other ultimate value to seek it's that you can embrace your ultimate value or not and if you do embrace it then you need the guidance of morality but all of that will come next time here what we've just gotten is that for any living organism life is the ultimate value and then next we turn to man in particular and to what would be our moral standard our standard of value that's it for this video Be sure to like it, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and if you want to stay in touch, the best way, as always, is go to donswriting.com and sign up for the newsletter. Talk next time.